Good morning, St. Barnabas. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of Malachi, chapter 1, from verse 1 through to 14. And the word reads, An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I have loved you, Jacob. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his heels into a country wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we may have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you, priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, The Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, What a burden! And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals, and offer them as sacrifices. Should I accept them from your hands? Says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord.
Well, good morning, folks. It's great to be together. It's also great to come and uh, worship with yeah, different brothers and sisters at a different congregation to see that our faith is indeed global. And there are brothers and sisters here who love Jesus in the city. So keep going. It's an honor to bring you God's word. Before I go any further, let me ask God to bless our time. Let me pray and ask him to help me to be clear. Father, we thank you that we can meet as your people freely. Thank you that we can open the word of God. Thank you that it is living and active and that it speaks to us. Um, so, Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our hearts and make us receptive to your word. For the glory of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I'll tell you a little bit more about my story. Um, but I'm sure many of you can testify, or maybe you've experienced this reality, that when you first became a Christian, as I mentioned, I became a Christian in 2006, when you first became a follower of Jesus, or to use the language of John's Gospel, born again, when the Holy Spirit drew you in, there was a closeness, there was an intimacy with God, with His Word and with His Kingdom. I remember for me, it was as if every prayer was answered. I used to ride a little 125 motorbike um, to school because petrol was expensive and I needed to get there. And I remember it was raining once and I remember praying as a young Christian, Lord, just stop the rain, please, I can get to school. And it seemed to stop. There was a closeness, there was an intimacy. Um, and in those days, it was, as I said, as if God answered every prayer. And I think part of that radical conversion when, when the Lord drew me to himself, um, part of why I wanted to be so different um, was because what I witnessed before I became a Christian, what we call wishy-washy Christianity. Um, I went to the beach the other day, or jellyfish Christianity, this sort of spineless Christianity. I don't know if you've encountered this, where there's a body and no spine for living. There's no convictions where Christians claim to know about Jesus and claim to love him, and yet don't live in that way. We all struggle with that. This is the type of Christianity, as I mentioned, I grew up in a, a Catholic background, um, and I'm thankful for you know, the fact that my parents did take me to church, but a lot of what I saw was people who proclaimed to love Jesus, yet lived in a different way. What I saw was a half-hearted approach to worship, a half-hearted approach to Christian living. And one of, those, one of the early passages, as I was remembering this time and as I was preparing this talk, there was a, a scripture that was brought to mind that I remember when I first became a Christian. Uh, Jesus says to the church in Revelation, to the church in Ephesus, he says, you've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name, you have not grown weary. And yet he says this, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. And so the, the charge to them is, you've forgotten your first love. And I remember those verses. It challenged me not to live half-hearted, not to let our love grow cold. Those are sobering words of Jesus. And in many ways, the book of Malachi that we've come to 
And the message of Malachi is, is about rebuking and encouraging a people, encouraging a people whose love has waned, who's grown cold, a people whose worship is half-hearted. There is this outward appearance of worship, but in the, the inward affections are cold. So this book really challenged me, and I hope you will, it's 55 verses, I hope you will go and read it at home and think a little bit about it. But let me give you some more context to this, to this book. Uh, Malachi means my messenger, so I don't know if that is his name, there's some ambiguity, whether his name is Malachi or he's just understood as God's messenger. But he's God's messenger with God's message. He's come to talk to the Israelite community. They've returned from exile. He's a post-exilic prophet. Um, it's also the last recorded message before the 400 years, the intertestamental period. So in one way, he closes out the Old Testament, looking forward to the New Testament. He sets the scene for John the Baptist, the final prophet who will prepare the way of the Lord. But we'll have a look at that. It's been a hundred years, a hundred years since the people have come back. They have come back from exile, and I'm sure you've been looking at some of the exilic prophets. Um, they've come back from the Babylonian captivity, which in many ways you could say is symbolic of the death of Israel. They've died for their sins. And now God has raised them up, and He's brought them back in His sovereign care. He's brought them back under the Persian king Cyrus. And so they've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the, the walls They've re-established worship. They were in God's land, under God's rule, worshipping Him again, to use the language of Goldworthy. But the people hadn't really learnt their lesson. Their affections towards God had grown cold. They had grown cold in their worship. One writer who writes on this book says, Their religion is active, but their affection is absent. And that's really the heart of the book, and you can understand why it would be relevant for us. At times, our religion is active. Sometimes, the outward signs of it is there, but the inward affection is cold. We go through the motions of going to church, of reading our Bible, going to community group, but often that deep desire that we had for God's kingdom wanes. It's overshadowed by the cares of the world. And so what I hope to do for Malachi, what I hope Malachi does for you guys this morning, is really encourage you, but encourage you in a way that you might not expect. It's a little bit of a rebuke to encourage you by warning you that God will not take half-hearted worship, that he is not pleased with an outward appearance of religion, yet our hearts are cold. But there's also hope, there's deep hope, it's a book of hope for us, and I hope to give you that hope in Malachi. But let's get a taste of the book. Let's get a taste by understanding its structure. And if you're reading any book of the Bible, structure determines meaning. When you understand the structure of the book, you can understand its meaning. And what's great about Malachi, I said, it's four chapters, 55 verses. Don't worry, I'm not going to read it all. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a taste for what the book is like. And there's an easy way of understanding the structure. God weaves his message to the Israelites in this question-answer type setting. It reads a little bit like a lawsuit. You say this, but we say this. You say this, but we say this. If you have a Bible, keep it open. Keep it open to Malachi. We'll go through it a little bit slowly, and I'll show you a little bit of these, what we call structural markers. They help you identify what's going on in the book. They'll give you a small taste for the book, 
might make the sermon a little bit longer, but I hope it'll be good for us. You'll see it there in verse 2. This is how it starts, and this is what characterizes the book. I don't know what version of the Bible you're using. Um, I mean, what translation? I'm using the ESV translation, which I think marks it out quite nicely. But let's go through a little bit and just get a, just get a, a, a taste of the book. So verse 2 starts off, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And then Yahweh explains. And we come down to verse 6 and 7 of the same chapter. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? If I then am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest, you despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. And notice again, but you say, how have we polluted you? And this goes on, it's this question and answer. Go down, scroll down to verse 13. I'll start with 12. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what weariness is this? And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. And so he rebukes them. It's just back and forth. If you flip over to chapter 2, Malachi brings this against them in verse 13. And this is the second thing you do in your worship. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because the Lord no longer accepts your sacrifice. But you say, why does he not? And he raises a, an issue happening in the church, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion, your wife by covenant, Sexual immorality happening. Flip down to verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, your many words of worship that you bring. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Where is he? I'll finish with chapter 3. Malachi is sometimes well known for its chapter 3 on robbing God with tithes. Have a look at the end of verse 7 of chapter 3. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. There's some hope. And we'll look at this. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Then he explains with the tithes and offerings. Half tithes, half offerings. So you can get a sense for this book. Um, White told me that you guys might study it later in the week through Bible study. And I think what will be good is just to read it again and see those structural markers. We say this, but you say that. And that really highlights the key issues in the book. So I hope that's given you a little bit of a taste for the book of Malachi. I'm going to focus today's talk in chapter 1. That's where we're going to, we're going to look. Um, and we're going to look at this half-hearted worship. And so there's really three things I want to do this morning with you guys. I want to demonstrate from chapter 1 why I say half-hearted worship, why one of the key issues is half-hearted worship. I want to show it from chapter 1. And then the second thing I want to do is I want to say, well, what causes this half-hearted worship? What's the anatomy of it? What does it look like? What are some of the causes that lay behind this half-hearted worship in the community? And then lastly, to give you the hope of Malachi, hope for our half-hearted hearts. So let's have a look at what is this half-hearted worship and I want you to have a look at verses 6 to 9. I'll read them again. 
Let's read it. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that then to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. He will show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi is saying, O priests who despise the name of the Lord. Think about who the priests are. The priests in many ways are the spiritual leaders of the Israelite community. They are the ones that are the meeting place between God and the people. They offer sacrifices on behalf of the people in honor of worship. And so the rebuke of the priests is a rebuke of the people in many ways because the rot has started at the head and it's spreading to the rest of the Israelite body. They're offering these sacrifices on the altar. Now God expected many types of sacrifices, but really these sacrifices and offerings were to be taken from the good things God had given them. And they were to be given back to God as a response to Him. You see, it was a sign showing the love and the covenant love and community God had given them. It was this relationship between God and His people. They would do it out of love for Yahweh. There were sacrifices for sin, too. But really, their worship was supposed to be characterized by let us offer these gifts back to God, tithes and offerings, back to God for everything He has done. So in many ways, their worship is about who God is, what He has done for them, all His actions, and they were supposed to worship Him in this way. You see, when they make a sacrifice, it shows what you value, right? When you give up something, when you give up your time for your kids, when you give up of your energy, you show you that you value something. You value someone. And yet, duty has replaced devotion for them. Religion is active, but the affection is cold. They have half-hearted sacrifices. You see, they could have just stopped the sacrifices. But what do they do? Instead of offering God the best, they offer this lame animal. The sick animal. Look at verse 14. It's there again. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it. So this is the interesting part. So they say, I'll do it. Or they plan to. And yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished, what is sick. It is half-hearted. I mentioned the, the tithes in chapter 3. Malachi points this out in verse 8. He says, will you rob God? Right? They're robbing God because... Instead of bringing the full tithe of what God had expected, they're bringing just a small amount. And this shows that their worship is half-hearted, that it's not fully devoted. They could have just stopped and said, well, okay, enough of this. We don't want to do it anymore. They're not brave enough to do that. And so what do they do? They limp along and they worship. They give a blind animal. They give a little bit of their time and love to God. They pay lip service, but their hearts are half-hearted. Now for us today, I don't think anyone woke up and offered a sacrifice on an animal, of an animal. 
Um, but our worship is very much the same. We worship in response to who God is, and this is an important point, who God is and what God has done. That's what worship is. We come to adore everything of who He is, the doctrine of God, and what He has done in our lives. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or in view of God's mercy, some versions say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Then he says this little part, which is your spiritual worship. Some versions say your spiritual act of worship. So Paul says to the church in Romans, in view of all that God has done, and here he's talking about the first 11 verses of Romans, he says, in everything God has done through the gospel, through these 11 chapters, as I've shown you, therefore, Romans, Christians, offer your body. Offer it as a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, but notice, Paul says in that verse, he says, and I've been puzzled by this, that it's holy and acceptable to God. In other words, our lives, our sacrifice of our whole lives, should be marked by something that is holy and acceptable. But also our sacrifice, if you notice, Paul says, present your bodies. Not half your bodies, not half your hearts, not half your talents, not half your gifts, not half your energy. Worship for Paul is all-encompassing. It's all of life. We offer it all to God, not just on a Sunday what we do here. Worship is more than the Sunday thing. More than the, this is an expression, but really the rest of our lives should be lived out in, in, in worship to God as we offer our bodies as this living sacrifice, pleasing, holy and acceptable to God, fully devoted, fully delighting in Him. So let me ask you, is your love, is your heart, fully devoted to God this morning? Does that characterize you? Half-hearted worship is not okay. We can't give God two hours on Sunday and yet live our lives as if they're ours. Paul says you were bought with the price on a God in your body. We can't spend two hours a day watching Netflix and on social media don't have my phone on me. That thing, that magnet just seems to be pulling us all the time. We spend hours on there. I know I do. We can't do that and then pray for a minute and read our Bibles for a minute. It's really struck me and challenged me. We can't worship our lives as salt and light in the city in the way that you work if it's half-hearted. That's not worship. That's not what Yahweh wants. He rebukes the priest. He says, I have no pleasure in you. I'm not pleased with you. Well, I hope I've shown that chapter 1, one of the key issues is this half-hearted worship, this lame and sick animals robbing God. Well, let's have a look. Let's have a look at the anatomy of it. Let's have a look at what, what is the cause of this half-hearted worship. As is said, forewarned is forearmed. So let's look at the cause. And I think the cause and the main contributor 2,500 years ago in Malachi's time and today in 2022 in our technological age is a failure to remember who God is and what God has done. 
I think that's at the heart of half-hearted worship. Limping half-hearted worship is not recognizing him for who he is and what he has done. I say that because the book starts off with verse 2. In this striking manner, Yahweh declares, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. What amazing words, what precious words. But you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us, God? What a question that we all ask. I think these precious words of God's love for them, declared in the beginning, I think sets the tone for the rest of the book. Sets the key issue, the center of this book, the love of God, and them questioning it. But Lord, how have you loved me? You see, to deny God's love, to ask this question, is to deny God himself and his actions. And I think this sin is named first because I think from this sin, everything else in Malachi flows. And so I hope when you read it, you'll see that. You can draw that connection. The slippery slope is set into motion. Prove yourself. How have you loved us? Ah, Lord, if you just do a miracle or answer this prayer, then I would know that you love me. Problem is, they've forgotten all the ways God has shown His love to them. This question is fundamental. Now, I want to be a little bit cautious here because I know when I thought about this, when I wrote this, I knew this is an issue that we all wrestle with. We've all asked this question, haven't we? God, do you really love us? Are you really here for us? In the intense moments of life, the suffering of the brokenness of this world, which if you haven't experienced, you will one day. Are you really here for us? Are you with us in this pain and this suffering? And I don't think, and this is why I want to be cautious, I don't think there's a problem with wrestling with God in a humble way. We see the Psalms do this as they wrestle with God. Why does this happen? But I think the danger is if we let it fester, if we we let it dominate what I call the internal dialogue of your mind and your heart, If it grows like gangrene, it'll spread, it will consume you. Does God love us? This is what they asked. And ultimately, this will lead to what happens in verse 13. It will lead to contempt, to half-hearted worship. Look at verse 13. After the Lord has accused him of polluting his table, he says, But you say, what weariness is this? And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Ah, do I have to do this again? Do I have to come here? Do I have to go to Bible study? Do I have to follow Jesus? Drag my feet along. But notice how the question is answered. How have you loved us? God responds by showing his sovereign electing love. Not the way we would have thought, right? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. I don't have the time to go into all the details of these two brothers and this phrase, which is picked up by Paul in Romans 9. But I think the main point of this reference here is to show that these two brothers, these two twins, before they had done anything worthy of the love of God or the acceptance of God, God in his sovereign care, in his sovereign electing grace, chose Jacob to be the father of Israel and not Esau to be the father of the Edomites. Now, Esau was technically older, 
And so he had all the privileges of the firstborn. Yet God in his wise, sovereign and electing love. This is not a doctrine we need to be afraid of or ashamed of. As the Anglican prayer book says, it's a sweet and comforting doctrine. But God is saying to the Israelites, before you had done anything, and there's no doubt that Malachi has the book of Deuteronomy in mind here. He says, before you had done anything, and this is a lot of what Deuteronomy says, before you could have proven yourself, you weren't a mighty nation, you weren't great. I chose you and I set my love upon you because I did it. I chose to pass by Esau, not because of anything he had done or anything you had done, but out of my own love, out of my unconditional freedom. I showed you my love by choosing you. But not only that, he has the whole story in, in view. I chose you. I rescued you out of Egypt with a mighty and an outstretched arm. I brought you to this promised land. I gave you the covenant. I gave you my laws. I gave you everything you need to live. I gave you a special mandate that you'd be a blessing to the nations. You'd be my treasured possession. Yet you asked me, how have you loved us? They have failed to remember and recount all that God is, all that he has done for him. And I think this point is made again in verses 6 and 7. The underlying cause of the half-hearted worship is a failure to see who God is. And look at how he is described. Two points, two well-known relationships are compared to, to God. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O priest, you despise my name. Children know how to honor their fathers. And slaves knew how to fear their masters. Yet the priests and the Israelite people despise the name of God. They despise God for who he is. And the flow of the text highlights their half-hearted worship by these lame and sick and poor animals. They have not recognized God for his greatness, for his awesomeness, for his majesty. And I say that because of verse the connecting word in verse 11. I listened to a sermon by John Piper that helped make this point, and so I want to show that to you in verse 11. Look at the flow of the text. He said, well, let's read 10b. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand, your half-hearted worship. I won't accept it. I'd rather reject it. And then he says, for, this connecting word, for, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. For his name is great amongst the nations. And therefore he will not accept it. The same phrase is repeated at the end of the chapter. Have a look. He says, cursed are you because you offer you vow to offer and worship in this way, but you don't. And then he says, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. That is who I am. I am a great king. I am the Lord of the armies. The Lord of hosts, that's what that means. The Lord of the armies. The wonderful. The master worthy of fear. The father worthy of honor. I am great, yet you fail to see and appreciate 
God for who he is. To call Psalm 96, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all the other gods. And so Yahweh rejects their worship because they have failed to see, to comprehend, to understand, to delight in the greatness of who God is. That is the root cause. We don't see God as great, and so we become bored and tired of him. We snort, what weariness is this? I have to come to church. Let me immediately relate this to our worship today. And when I mean worship, I mean the formal worship. Um... I said it's more than what we do on a Sunday, as Paul says, it's offering our whole lives. But what we do on a Sunday is a good expression of that. And so here, I want to challenge the, the worship leaders, the service leaders, but also think about the worship that we listen to, the music that we listen to, that we fill our minds and ears with, the worship music. Is this centered on the greatness and the awesomeness of God? Is it proclaiming God's great name among the nations? I say this because I know a lot of modern day worship songs are man-centered. Oh, how God will do this for me, how God loves me. And that's an important, I don't want to downplay that. But the problem with a me-centered worship that's all about me is that it makes the view of God small, it diminishes it and raises up our needs and our desires and our wants, which God is for, but that isn't the purpose. And so our singing and the music that you listen to, I know for young people that's an important thing. They've always got these pods in their ears. Is the greatness and the awesomeness of God there? And while God has come close to us in the person of His Son, He is still the transcendent God. He is still the holy and the great God to be feared. We are still creatures and He is still the Creator. And so my prayer is that uh, we wouldn't have a small view, we'd have a mighty view of God. That we wouldn't get to verse 13, where our worship is filled with what weariness is this, and we drag our feet about it. So I've hoped that I've tried to show you that half-hearted worship is one of the key issues here in Malachi. And half-hearted worship is caused by not seeing God for who He is, as the great Father, worthy of honor, as the great master, worthy to be feared. And what causes it is when we question God's love for us repeatedly. and We let it fester and grow in our hearts. And so in closing, I want to give you the good news. There is good news for us in Malachi. This has been quite hard, I, I, I sense. This was hard writing it. But there is good news. There is hope for us in Malachi Turn to chapter 3. Starts off in 17. And they ask, how have we wearied him? And it goes down to asking, where is the God of justice? An important question. In verse 3, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fullest soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Here's some hope for us. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in its former days. And so there's three things that are said here. God is going to send his messenger to prepare the way. The Lord is going to come to his temple. He's going to clear it out. He's going to purify and refine the worship so that the sacrifices are pleasing once more. I'm sure you know that verse. That verse is echoed by Isaiah 41, which pointed to John the Baptist. I'm not going to go through the whole of John, but open your Bible to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. John testifies to his role in verse 23. Keep your Bible open there. He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Quotes Isaiah, which also quotes Malachi, which is echoing Malachi. John tells us, he is preparing the way. Keep your hand in John's gospel. Look at verse 29. And he prophetically declares in verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's another way of saying, Behold, the sacrifice of God that is not lame, that is not sick, that is not blemished, the perfect sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. He is here. He is here to take away the sins of our half-hearted worship. He is here to do his work, and he will come to his temple. Keep your finger open in John's Gospel. Flip to chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. We have the first thing Jesus does, the wedding at Cana, and then he comes to the temple to, to clear it out, to purify the temple of its selfish worship by overturning the money changes in verse 15. And then look at verse 21. There's the connection made. After Jesus says in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 40 years to build this temple. Will, will you raise it up in three days? John gives us this interpretation, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that was spoken about him. In other words, the temple as the place of worship will be no more. Worship will take place through Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, his sin-removing death for us. And so the hope for us, if we are half-hearted in this moment, is that we can look to Jesus because that system is done away with. As Hebrew says, through Jesus we can continually offer sacrifices that are pleasing. Only through him. We don't have to struggle this morning to wonder if we can offer lives that are worthy. Through Jesus we definitely can. Jesus who came to re-establish what temple worship meant. Stay in John's Gospel. Flip over to chapter 4. Jesus encounters this wayward worshipper, this distorted worshipper 
in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. He confronts her about her sin. I'll pick it up from verse 20. Actually, from verse 19. So the context is Jesus has said, the person you are with is not your husband. He exposes her sin. And then she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Because he's exposed that she's not with her husband and she's had five. And she said to him, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And by Jerusalem, she means the Jerusalem temple. And then Jesus says to a woman, believe me, verse 21, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You'll worship, you, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him, for God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so the hope for us this morning as worshippers is that we have been given the spirit. This is true of us. The spirit has been sent to us. We are a spirit-filled community. A spirit-filled community who unites us to what Jesus has done. And therefore we can offer true worship. Worship that is righteous, that has come back to the temple that God smells and is pleased with because on the basis of Jesus. Because we've been purified. Because His righteousness has been given to us. Credited to us. We can stand worthy and give God praise and honor. That is the hope for us this morning. But there's more than that. Still in John's Gospel, God has shown us His love. We don't have to question, how has God loved us? For God so loved us that He sent His Son, the elected one, to come and die in our place and on our behalf. Right? John further says in his letter, and this is love. This is how you will know that God loves you today not that we loved him first, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We know that he loves us objectively by 2,000 years ago by looking to that cross where he demonstrated that love for us. So let me encourage you this morning to return to true worship because of who God is. And God indeed is your father. We are his sons and his daughters because we've been adopted as so. What does Galatians tell us? God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts and we can cry together. We can cry, Abba Father. We can know him as the father and we can honor him as that father. We can do that with full hearts because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and who tells us we are the temple of God. That is our hope that this morning. And we can worship in the truth. We can sing the truth and we can know the truth of who God is and what he has done. We know him as our father. We know him as the God who loves us, who loves you this morning. And again, the truth of what he has done. How he loved you in his son and how he is for you this morning. And so I encourage you, return afresh to worshipping him. And so my prayer is that you would be gospel-worshipping people. And the gospel is about who Jesus is, the king of God's kingdom, and what he has done, how he has loved you. And that is the hope for you this morning.
So return to him and offer wholehearted worship, I pray. Why don't you pray with me? Father, thank you that because Jesus has given us his righteousness by taking away our sin on the cross, we can come forward as people who are clean, who are, who are worthy to be in your presence, and we can offer our lives, we can offer in them, in worship that is pleasing to you. Thank you that we are indeed holy because of Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who you sent to empower us who enables us to worship, to worship by crying, Abba, Father, that you are the God of, who desires honor, and yet we can, we can know you, and we can honor you. And so I pray, I pray for this community here, this covenant community here, Father. I pray that we would return to your love, your love seen on that cross 2,000 years ago, and that if there are those who are limping along, who are doubting, whose love is growing cold, Father, may you afresh by your word and by your spirit encourage them. Deep, may they comprehend the love that you have for them displayed on the cross of Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.